This is episode 4-3 of Free Isn't Freedom. Hi, I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free Isn't Freedom. And we're, what, what is this going to, is going to air at some point in September. Okay. And it's uh, it, still a talk from Fosdem. Yeah. I'm sorry, my, everyone. Yeah. And my, my dogs are so bored with Fosdem, they're snoring right here in the recording. You can hear them snoring in the background. Yeah. Because. Uh, they're like, this old talk. But well, no, yeah, we've got a lot. There's great material, though. Yeah. We, we'll, we'll use it up. I have uh, talks from conferences after Fosdem, too, that we can get to later. So, <laughs> so we have a lot of a lot of talks that are backlogged, and this one is from my colleague at the FSF, John Sullivan. Yeah. So State of the Gununian. Should we just uh, let let him say it, and we'll talk about it afterwards? That's fine. Is that what you want to do? It is. Do you have I any other do. announcements of any kind? I don't think so. For the Gunam Foundation. There's a lot. Of, oh, we'll we'll be able to record something after. Okay. Uh, okay. There might be a, like like happened before. There might be a secret news item that's not available yet, but could be available. So you have to wait to the end to see if it was available. But it'll be at the end of some of these podcasts or other. And here's John. Morning, everybody. Uh, so I have a problem, which is I can't actually pronounce the name of my talk here. Uh, can someone else do it for me? Yes. It's a real nuisance. And this is this is the way the FSF actually works. If you haven't already figured that out, is, is we come up with a bad pun first, uh, and then everything else comes from there. So that's how entire software projects have been launched that way. Yeah, it seems to work. You know, so why change now? Um, <laughs> So in the United States, the president every year gives a, a speech called the State of the Union Address, and it happens uh, right around now, actually, in a couple of weeks. Um, actually, yeah, in about one week, President Obama will give his, and the idea is just to kind of talk about what's happened so far in the, in the term and, and what challenges he sees for the year ahead. And uh, in licensing terms, you know, that's, that's the way that we've been thinking about things a lot lately, too. There's been some uh, issues raised within the GNU community about the FSF licensing and copyright assignment practices. Um, there's been questions about how we handle enforcement um, and how we do uh, a lot of other things related to licensing. So I'm going to kind of move through um, several different things and then uh, hopefully leave a lot of time at the end to discuss uh, whatever is on your mind. So, and I did also want to point out, we recently moved to our own um, status net server for microblogging um, at the FSF. So you can subscribe to that from Identica or from your own status net server. So I'm the executive director at the Free Software Foundation. Um, I'm just coming up now on my second anniversary of that job. And uh, as part of that, I'm hoping to do more traveling. And so we'll hopefully see a lot of you at other places as well. The first year was kind of about getting um, familiar with some of the machinery at the FSF and, and making some internal changes. And now I think we're ready to uh, get out behind the desk a little more. But it's also my 10-year anniversary at the FSF coming up. Um, it's a little bit scary, but it's been an awesome place to be. So I'm also happy about that. Uh, we, um, 
my role with the compliance and licensing uh, team at the FSF, I'm not a lawyer. I guess that, like, you're supposed to say that whenever you talk about licensing stuff, I've learned that. Um, but I, my role as part of the compliance team is to help decide the human component of the licensing compliance policy. So how, does our, uh, how do our rules, how do our recommendations about licensing relate to our overall strategy, our mission to promote free software ideas in the world? And also within the compliance world, what kind of strategies do we use to achieve that? How fast do we escalate things? How do we talk to people about it? And uh, how do we make the decision? So obviously, I do have to be familiar with the licenses, um, but I'm not the uh, expert who can quote sections of the GPL back to you by heart. Fortunately, um, we have uh, people on the staff who uh, explore it at that level of detail. So in this talk, I want to talk uh, about what we do at the FSF in the area of, of licensing and compliance and what we see happening this year. Uh, I want to explain a little bit more about why we do these things, especially as it relates to some of the um, criticism or questions that have been raised recently. I want to talk about how things are going. Uh, and uh, what we think we need to change. I want to provide some ideas for what you can do if you're interested in licensing and compliance and, and want to help uh, the FSF or want to help uh, licensing be used in a good way to promote software freedom in the broader free software community. Some ideas about that. And then, um, of course, the last item, which did not appear for some reason, is that I want to hear your thoughts about what we need to change or what we can do better in your ideas. I promise it's on the slide in the source code. <laughs> so this is uh, the Licensing Compliance Lab, the names. Um, it's recently changed, so I wanted to update people about this. We have uh, Josh Gay, who has been a campaigns manager for the FSF in the past, and he's recently moved to the position of <coughs> managing the Licensing Compliance Lab. Uh, Donald Robertson, who has been handling copyright assignments <coughs> at the FSF for a while, um, is now still handling that, but also uh, handling, helping Josh with compliance work and with the other uh, work of the compliance lab. Uh, me, as I mentioned, my role in it, uh, Richard Stallman, the president, uh, obviously wrote the GPL and uh, makes final decisions about interpretations of the license and what the FSF positions are. Um, Bradley, uh, as an FSF director on our board, is a, a huge resource for us in determining our uh, licensing decisions and recommendations. We rely on lawyers at the Software Freedom Law Center extensively, especially Evan Moglin and Aaron Williamson. So the FSF doesn't actually directly employ any lawyers to do this work. Uh, for We are very fortunate to have the SFLC to provide us with um, pro bono assistance in this area. You know, we do our best to uh, work through all of the issues that can be worked through without requiring outside counsel. But uh, as we all know, eventually, uh, if companies refuse to comply or particularly thorny questions come up, we have to involve um, lawyers. We also have a team of volunteers. They mainly help out with answering questions that come to the licensing at fsf.org email address. This is one of the things that is really, that the FSF does that I think is really important in the licensing area is help communicate with people who don't want to care about licensing, um, how to use licenses, um, which licenses to use in which situations, and to just be a resource to answer at no charge um, community questions about the operation of free software licenses. So we have some uh, volunteers who have been working on this for quite a while and are really knowledgeable and they help handle those, those questions. And then we have a second address, license violation at gudu.org, which will be uh, for reporting GPL violations. Okay, so what do we do there? Um, produce educational materials to show people how to use the licenses. Uh, investigate violations, especially where they involve code that's been entrusted to the FSF via copyright assignment. <coughs> We've recently started certifying products that use and require only free software, and that falls on the, the licensing compliance lab because they have the expertise to 
discern those cases. We do licensing not because we want to do licensing. We're not a copyright clearinghouse. Um, we do licensing because we have to, uh, because the default around the world is that if you release a piece of code, it is proprietary. So you have to use a copyleft license to carve out an exception to that. So the GPL and, and copyleft in general are just tools to achieve the broader end of promoting free software adoption. This is a, the issues that I'm gonna talk about here. And uh, it's gonna be, a, as you can see, a kind of a quick step through a lot of these. GPL adoption, um, what I talked about here last year actually was the reports that uh, GPL adoption was declining relative to permissive licenses. Uh, a lot was made out of that. Uh, people said that it was because people were uh, not liking the FSF anymore or not supporting the concept of copyleft anymore. And so yeah, I was questioning here last year where those numbers came from. And it turns out that the numbers that were saying that the GPL use was declining, first of all, weren't saying that GPL use was declining. They were saying that the rate of increase was slowing. And so that's the first important point to keep in mind. Second point, important point to keep in mind was that none of these uh, studies published their methodology to explain how they arrived at those numbers. Now, to stress that point, I did my own study as a completely untrained studier of <laughs> such things. And uh, what I did was look at the licensing of Debian squeeze packages because I was interested in how uh, GPL use would show up in a more curated collection of software. So an actual stable release of a distribution that people uh, use as opposed to some of the other operations which are attempting to count uh, licenses by uh, GitHub and Gatorius and SourceForge and just projects that are on the internet everywhere. What was the release date of Squeeze? Uh, just over uh, one year old. One year old, yeah. So I found the uh, ridiculous number in doing this that 93% of packages in Debian Squeeze were under the GPL family of licenses GPL, LGPL, AGPL. Uh, I did that using a tool that's in Debian, well, used by, written by Debian developer to count the licenses and packages. Uh, after this, there were some questions raised about it, um, legitimate ones, and uh, so to clarify what this number actually meant, this was counting any time a package had any GPL or LGPL or AGPL code in it. So in Debian, for example, it's common for a package to have scripts that go along with it that uh, might be licensed under one of those uh, licenses, even when the main core of the package is not actually under the GPL. So you could have a permissively licensed package and then uh, some GPL <laughs> stuff around it. And that's a, a legitimate point, because, but it's also making my point. Because my point is, what are you counting when you're counting license adoption? Right? Okay, we took a very broad view of if a package contains any GPL code, we're going to count that as an instance of GPL software. What is another company doing? Are they saying the majority of lines of code have to be under that license in order for it to count under that category on the spreadsheets? Are they saying it has to be significant code? Because one of the things I complained about before was that they're not, we don't even know if the code that's being counted by uh, other organizations, <coughs> other companies, is working code, abandoned code. Uh, if it's projects on development sites, it could very easily be you know, somebody's hobby that they started up and haven't had a commit in uh, two years since they graduated. So I think this experience showed the difficulty of, of engaging in this kind of endeavor, and I, I do plan to revisit it um, and see if we can improve our information. We are interested in the rate of GPL adoption, not because we, are, uh, we make money on each use of the GPL. You know, we're interested in GPL adoption because we think it's a great tool for promoting free software, and we think that it's 
the strongest uh, legal protection that we have to make sure the free software stays free. So that'll be uh, something that will happen this year with regards to um, measuring license adoption. Um, but I also want to call attention to some interviews that we've been doing, um, Josh and Don have been doing on FSF.org, because it was another, you know, we know that from our experience that this isn't true, that there's some, you know, uh, flights away from the GPL or from uh, copyleft, and we want to show that partly by interviewing people who have chosen one of these licenses, and they give their reasons for why they picked that license, and they give some more background about their project. So if you want to um, subscribe, there's an RSS feed there. You can stay up to date on the interviews. Uh, we've talked to PWIC, the uh, free software web analytics package. Uh, GNU Octave was another one that we did. There's been a few so far, and we're, we're definitely going to do some more. So you're interviewing people who've chosen the GPL, or you're interviewing yeah. people also who have moved away from the GPL? Uh, right now, just people who are using the GPL. Right. <laughs> That's what we wanted to start with. Outside so. the GNU project? What's that? Outside the GNU project? Yeah, both. We had, Like I said, we did GNU Octave, which was inside the new project. And I agree, that's kind of like, well, okay. <laughs> A GNU project, <laughs> don't show the GPL. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Nonetheless, we thought his, his explanation was interesting um, and, and worth highlighting, John Eaton's. Uh, but we had, PWIC is not a GNU project. It's an independent project that replaces Google Analytics, basically, for um, and has much better privacy protections and that kind of thing for analyzing web traffic. Um, so that was a non-GNU project. We're going to do both. And maybe in the future, we will do interviews about other kinds of licenses. But the uh, you know not secret motivation for this project is to highlight why people like the GPL uh, who don't work for the FSF. <laughs> so I think it's worth helping those people get heard. So. The GPL leads us into compliance responsibilities. Um, as has been mentioned already today, the FSF collects copyright assignments on code in the Gnu project. And even in front of this room of, of uh, relatively advanced and people experienced with licensing, I, uh, there's a couple things I want to highlight about our policy that are frequent misconceptions. Um, number one is the FSF does not require that all Gnu projects assign their code to the FSF. That is often repeated and it is wrong. Um, what we do require at the moment is if a package is assigned to the FSF, all of the contributions to that package in the future also have to be assigned. But there are plenty of new packages where the FSF does not hold the copy. That's generally a decision that's made at the time when the project um, joins GNU, and uh, we go from there. Um, second misconception I want to dispel is uh, the, the what happens if Bill Gates buys the FSF. Um, thing and we own all your code and so we can do whatever we want with it. Um, no, we can't. So the assignment agreement commits the FSF to only release the software as free software in the future. Um, this is a very important distinction because a lot of companies who require copyright assignments or have other kinds of contributor licensing agreements like to point to the FSF as an example to say, well, the FSF does it, so why should you have a problem assigning code to us? Well, the issue is that our agreement says that the FSF will only release the software as free software in the future. Um, oftentimes, those company agreements do not make that promise. And if they don't, that means you're giving them the ability to release your code as proprietary software in the future, which probably isn't what you want. Who defines what is free software there? Uh, there's a specific um, criteria. I'm paraphrasing, because in the actual agreement, it lists uh, the parts of that. So if you sign it. It's not free software as defined by the FSF, because that would be kind of 
it defines the actual thing. It yeah, right. names the things. If someone yeah, got the FSF, we, they could redefine free software and then go, oh, we, yeah, we, spent, right. we spent a lot of time yeah, writing that, that language over the years. It's, yeah. it's kind of meta language for the GPL. Uh, yeah. and, and those of you that have seen the copyright sum, you'll see that paragraph. But it's, yeah. uh, we, we spent a lot of time to try to make it so it's language that binds the FSF as well. Sure. Yeah, and then the other thing to uh, remember is that our assignment agreement gives, you, gives the developer a grant back of their rights. So it does not restrict the developer's ability to do with their do with their code what they want to do in the future. Um, it does say they can't take it back from us. You know, they we they've given the FSF uh, copyright interest in this code, but they are able to uh, use their code in other ways after that agreement. And then the third thing is we are a nonprofit with public charity status in the United States, which means that if we were to do something against our mission, which is part of our original paperwork when we became a nonprofit then we would be in trouble uh, legally with the people who grant us nonprofit status. So the FSF would not become a proprietary software company overnight because we would lose our nonprofit status. We've made a legal commitment um, to preserve that. Now the assignment process, how many of you have assigned code to the FSF? Thank you. Uh, so I'm sorry the process was annoying. <laughs> It, it um, wasn't for me, but I was in the office. You were in the office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so uh, historically, the process has literally involved um, us mailing you a piece of paper. Well, first of all, you email us the information we need to construct the piece of paper. Uh, we mail you the piece of paper. You sign the piece of paper. You mail it back to us. Uh, we sign it. And we send you a copy, and we keep a copy. Um, that's like, you know, we don't. People don't like to do things that way anymore. We email things now. Uh, I don't think people ever like to do it that way. No, and believe me, the FSF does not like it. So uh, every time you complain about the process, believe me, um, I love managing it. It's awesome. <laughs> uh, my dream of life was actually to supervise a really strong and efficient paperwork process. Uh, no, I, I don't like it either, but we do it for a reason. We do it because it's actually the laws in a lot of places are behind um, as much as the FSF is behind. So it is. Um, Difficult to ascertain. We deal with contributor, contributors all around the world. Copyright assignment isn't any good if it's not a legal agreement. And we have to make sure that around the world, uh, a scanned or a digital agreement will actually, instead of a paper agreement, will actually hold up. And we are in the process of, of working on that. Um, some of you might have seen some of the improvements that we made over the course of the last year. If you're a US contributor, the whole process can now be done uh, not digitally in a more advanced sense, but at least <coughs> using scanned versions of the contracts. Uh, we've also recently expanded that to Germany uh, after getting a, a legal opinion on that. So German contributors can now also uh, carry out the process that way. I tried that last week. Yeah. It took me 10 minutes to do the assignment. Yeah. <laughs> Much better. It's been three months. Yeah. It's yeah. An improvement. So um, it, it, it's a slightly different style of agreement. So you, um, it may not, the parallel may not go. But in Mozilla, once we got to the stage where we could accept scanned. Um, scanned agreement. We have a we have a kind of I promise to do these good things when I have commit access agreement rather than a copyright assignment. Um, we decided well why not and we now also accept digital camera photographs of the signed document because that's basically like a scanner, right? If you're we we have a resolution minimum for the camera and you know we say a standard sheet of A4 or a US letter mm -hmm. at a certain just you know and say take a photo and send us that because not so many people have scanners but pretty much everyone has a digital camera. That's, so uh, I, might, uh, I might want to get a copy of how you are doing that for me because that's interesting. Well, we, I, I can't we, we just say or a digital camera photograph. There's not much more to it than that. I can show you the page. But yeah. It's awesome. an idea to try and smooth things up because scanners are actually still not all that common. That's true. Yeah. 
Yeah, thank you. Uh, so, and then we are working on an actual digital signing process <coughs> involving uh, key, you know, GPG, et cetera. So that's the next thing, hopefully, that we will. But meanwhile, we're going to continue working on expanding the current improvements around the world. Um, I'm only uh, dwelling on that because it's been a frequent complaint about how the copyright assignment logistics actually slow down free software development within GNU. So um, as uh, annoying as the details of logistics are, they're actually somewhat important for successfully achieving our mission of uh, quality software development um, with uh, free software. Now, why do we get assignments? We get assignments because we want to enforce, be able to enforce the license and make sure that people aren't turning GPL software into proprietary software. Uh, recently, um, uh, Verner, the GPG maintainer, had voiced concerns publicly about uh, the, how much enforcement the FSF was actually doing and whether we were um, upholding our responsibility that we accept when we um, take someone's copyright and say that we'll look out for their software for them. Uh, and the lesson that we took away from this was that, first of all, that he had a valid complaint in my mind about how quickly we pursued some violations that he had to told us about with GPG. But the main issue turned out to be a communication problem in that the FSF had actually gone much further uh, pursuing that violation than he was aware of. And that was our fault for not communicating it. One change that we've made there is to ensure that each step of a violation that we investigate now, we're informing the GNU maintainer uh, about the action that we've taken so that they know that we're actually moving on the violation. It's frustratingly slow work, as a lot of people here have already uh, mentioned. Uh, this one in particular has to do with a company which is based in um, Singapore, uh, distributing a Firefox extension that uh, violates the GPG license. Then when we went to pursue it, the original uh, links had disappeared, but they popped up in other places on a different website. But then when you clicked on those, they took you back to the original website. So this compliance work of trying to track down who is actually distributing the software, who you need to target, and who you can actually <coughs> hope to get a uh, reaction from is it's intense. And it requires a lot of uh, people hours. They're not distributing it via our platform, are they? No. Okay. No, so really. uh, but so it's hard to tell people about this work, right? Like you don't want to uh, you don't want to hear about each step of this uh, violation investigation. It's boring. Uh, but also, we can't tell talk about it too much because we don't want to scare companies into hiding behind lawyers before we get a chance to talk to them. So our usual practice is to speak privately to the company first um, and let them know that we had that we found a problem and offer constructively to help them resolve it. And as long as they respond appropriately to that, then we move forward um, privately and help them fix the issue. And our goal in the end is to achieve compliance with the license. If they don't, then eventually we have to publicly talk about it. And uh, But oftentimes at the same point where we'd want to publicly talk about it, we would actually be moving into legal action, which may complicate publicly talking about it. So it's I hate standing up here and telling people, you know, trust us, the FSF does a lot of enforcement work. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of this work by its nature is um, hard to discuss publicly. We can get some numbers. Um, Josh posted on the blog recently that uh, since him and Don <coughs> moved into compliance positions, they've closed uh, 400 violation reports. Uh, now, How most of that? those are, you know, a, a lot of those are turned out to uh, not be violations, but this is part of the work that we have to do. We go through the violation reports that we get and we resolve them either by ascertaining that they're not actually a violation or by writing to the people and getting them fixed. And a lot of those have actually resulted in um, compliance, active action followed by compliance. And 
to put that in perspective, uh, last year when I was here at the same time, again, we had just concluded our fundraiser for the year and I had uh, said that we had a successful one. And because of that, in uh, March, we were able to add additional staff resources to the compliance lab. So that's, you know, we're, we were aware that we weren't moving fast enough on compliance issues. Our response to that was to, uh, first of all, appeal for more support, which people thankfully <coughs> gave. And then second of all, to use that support to help boost that area of our work. And I'm hoping to do that again this year. We just concluded our fundraiser uh, and again, had an even better one than last year. So, you know, we're a nonprofit. We want to do service for people, but we also depend on people to provide us with those resources. And of course, we always work hard to make sure that we're using those resources efficiently. Um, app Store licensing. I am have, I'm going to shy away from discussing the ins and outs of the terms here uh, because right now we are actually reviewing several of them at the same time. And you can look forward to a nice resource on fsf.org being published in the near future that will be a, a static area explaining any issues that we find. Um, in the past, though, we did enforce against Apple in the uh, App Store for distributing GNU software uh, without following the requirements of the GPL. Uh, and their response to that, unfortunately, was to remove the application from the App Store. Uh, in that case, we broke with our usual practice in compliance, and we did actually tell people publicly uh, very quickly that we were taking this action. The reason we did it, uh, treated Apple differently, was because we were concerned that that was the action they would take. And we needed people to know that Apple uh, really will remove GPL software from the store in a heartbeat which is troubling, even if the terms, which have changed since then, which is why we're reassessing them, even if those terms uh, do, by letter, allow for free software to be in the store, there's a lot of problematic things about the App Store, and there's some things to consider before uh, putting free software into it that you wrote. For example, uh, people can't install, if you distribute a free software application through the App Store, they, they can't get the source code. Where does the source code come from? Right. At what point is something actually free software if all they get is a binary on their phone? Right. Second of all, if they get the source code from your development website, um, what do they do with it? They can't install it on their phone. Right. And now, not everybody wants to install software on their phone that's yeah, built from source code. That's fine, but are we going to get to the level of saying, well, okay, it's not that important that the software be free as long as the user isn't technical? Um, that's not the direction that we want to go down. Now, there are ways for people to gain control over their phones. They can root them, uh, jailbreak them. That, to me, is the community of users that if you're going to write software for the iOS platform because you think it's a popular platform and you want to get free software into the hands of people that are using it, then provide your software outside of the App Store. Distribute it as free software, just like if you were distributing a free software application for Windows, um, and help encourage people and provide a thriving uh, system of free software outside of Apple's control. That's the approach that, you know, that's the first thing to keep in mind. The rest of this about whether the free software can technically be in the App Store or not doesn't overcome this fundamental issue. And it's also important to remember that free software popularity does not mean adoption of free software ideas, right? Apple is already distributing free software. The core of their operating system is free software, right? It was. Uh, the Amazon is already distributing free software on the Kindle. Uh, people are using Android phones that have mostly free software with a lot of proprietary software in the hands of millions of people. How many of those people know that they're using free software or why it's important? 
right? So we have to keep in mind that just getting the software into the hands of people isn't the only thing we need to be concerned about. And there are better ways. You know, I, I, I hear the call for the FSF to uh, adjust and to provide a, a better vision for how we can deal with the situation. And in licensing terms, um, the two solutions right now are replicants, which is the version of Android that has removed all the proprietary uh, drivers and uh, does not include any proprietary software in it at all. And F-Droid, which is the free software marketplace that includes only free software applications. And F-Droid you can use on any Android phone. Uh, it replaces the Google official store. And anything you download from there has been vetted and, and already determined to be free software. That's an awesome project. That's the type of thing we should be encouraging. Um, it, it really actually, that way users know that they're getting free software when they get it and they can learn about it. Uh, the other thing to keep in mind is, is uh, small issues with the uh, Apple App Store, such as donation apps are not allowed. All right? Your application cannot have a donation button. All donations have to be handled through SMS or a website. <coughs> so people's uh, sort of you know, dream about having free software funded this way starts to run into problems when Apple is the gatekeeper. Um, F-Droid, on the other hand, very willingly supports donations to developers. Uh, there's even a field in the metadata for the application that includes it in the store for that. Um, so there's lots of reasons to support it. Also, uh, F-Droid itself is licensed under the AGPL. It is a piece of free software, which means anybody can launch their own marketplace. Um, so that's what we see as the better ways. And, and I, yes, I know Replicant does not run on many phones. By the way, it's replicant.us if anybody uh, wants to look at the website. But it runs on my phone. This isn't a, you know, this isn't a brick. This is a relatively recent Android phone. It's a Nexus S. Replicant runs on it. You lose a lot of functionality. Yes, you don't have Wi-Fi. You don't have Bluetooth. Uh, you do have uh, internet over the GSM. You can make phone calls. You can send text messages. You can run any application uh, out of the store that does not require those pieces of hardware. The camera works. Okay, so yeah, it sucks. You gotta make some sacrifices sometimes. Um, and I understand that makes our message tougher to deliver, but for those of us that are willing to make the sacrifice, you know, please do and please do support that model and at least try to get involved to see how you can help um, push that forward. So that's kind of where we stand. Uh, we will be publishing an analysis of the terms uh, once we finish going through them and not just of the Apple Store, but also of the Google Store, uh, the Windows Store, and you know, any of the new ones that happen to pop up. Yeah. It may be worth thanking Jean-Baptiste for drawing our attention to the fact that we ought to reassess. I mean, I, yeah. th I think he was very helpful in this guy. Is Jean-Baptiste still here? Or not? Okay. Yeah, the, who spoke before, he, he actually raised with us that maybe we should look at the terms again and reanalyze them, and, and we appreciated that feedback, I think. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah. So thank you to Jean-Baptiste. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so like I said, the main problem with the App Store is that users can't, don't actually have control over their phone, right, um, as it comes to them from Apple. Well, another area where that's happening is in the secure boot versus restricted boot uh, genre, where uh, Microsoft, uh, through the Windows 8 logo program, is requiring a security measure called Secure Boots. Um, how many people know about this already? Okay, very. So I'll, I'll skip the basics. Um, but everybody knows that in the case of an x86 processor, uh, the requirement is that the user does need to be able to disable Secure Boot and boot a modified piece of software, a modified system. So that's what we're calling Secure Boot. But the Windows 8 program also says that for ARM platforms, such as tablets, uh, the user must not be able to do that. So that's what we're calling restricted boot. 
right? And that's, we use those terms because we need to make that distinction. We need to make that distinction because the FSF does not oppose secure boot inherently. We are annoyed by it, okay? Because now it means that if you go and buy a laptop at the store, there may be an extra step that you have to go through before you can install a GNU Linux distribution on it. But if things are done correctly, it is not uh, a license violation and there's not something inherently wrong. In fact, it's kind of what the free software model for security is supposed to be, right? It's a system that secures the software on the device that the user has the keys to, so the user decides who to trust, the user decides whether to have it on or off. As long as that power is actually with the user, then that's good. But on tablets, it's not. Um, and on lots of other devices, uh, phones, it's not either. Oops, skipping ahead. Um, so, we, as far as the license compatibility with uh, Secure goes, the important thing to keep in mind is um, Grub2, which is uh, the bootloader um, that needs to be checked by Secure Boot, is licensed under GPLv3. Uh, there were some concerns raised by Canonical that uh, because of GPLv3 requirements, if somebody selling a laptop with Ubuntu on it screwed up and uh, shipped it with restricted boot instead of secure boot, that Canonical could then be forced to disclose their security keys so that the user could download them and sign a modified version of the bootloader in order to comply with the bootloader's license. Um, that is not uh, the way that the license works, and we talked to Canonical after that and managed to you know, explain, and we came to an agreement. So Canonical was going to have Ubuntu drop Grub2 because of that, and they are now sticking with Grub2 instead, and uh, the reason it doesn't raise a licensing, well, Canonical would not be forced to disclose their keys. That's, there's no chain that leads back to that, but also importantly, the only thing that a company has to do to comply with a license, in this case, is make sure that the user can turn Secure Boot off. As long as the user can turn Secure Boot off and install a modified version of Grub2 or any other uh, GPLv3 <coughs> software there, then that's compliance uh, with one more footnote, which is that instructions have to be provided in order for the user to do that. So you can't just hand a laptop that, you know, if you knew like you know, whatever the contra code was from then up, up, down, down, right, right. You, know, you have to actually like give the user step-by-step -step instructions for how to do it. And that's the compliance issue that we're actually most concerned about in this area. Right now we're gonna have to take a look at what um, companies are doing here and make sure that what they're providing is sufficient to guarantee that users can install <coughs> modified software compliance with GPLv3. Um, and another thing to keep in mind that's uh, not a licensing issue per se, but a uh, advocacy and, and political issue here is that the firmware itself also needs to be free software. Just like we've been campaigning for a long time to have the BIOS uh, machines be released as free software. So that issue still remains. The UEFI firmware that these uh, machines have also needs to be free software. Core boot. Uh, needs to be, it, users need to be able to put core boot on the machine and change the software at that level in addition to being able to change the software that boots uh, after uh, the boot chain starts. <coughs> JavaScript licensing is uh, something that we've been spending a lot of time on lately. And it's, <laughs> I'll make the segue from secure boot in that this is a uh, stuff that's buried in a level of the computer that most users don't really want to care about. But it's actually, it's a very important. So JavaScript is now um, being used by so many web applications to do very advanced things. These are very advanced programs that are running in your browser and uh, they are running locally on your machine. 
right? But for some reason, we've been turning a blind eye to this. Uh, this is proprietary software that's being handed to you by the server, and then your machine uh, executes locally. If you care about, if you've made a commitment to use uh, free software on your machine, you probably don't want somebody else handing you proprietary software over the network to run any more than you want to have a copy of Microsoft Office on your machine, right? So this is something that we have to be concerned about. But JavaScript is a very different kind of software uh, often, and when it's distributed over the web, it comes in you know, minified versions. Uh, you can have lots of different JavaScript files handed to you when you visit a website. And so it raises a lot of unique compliance challenges. So what we've been doing, this, the main article that uh, introduces our thinking on this problem is the JavaScript article from a few, JavaScript tracked article from a few years ago. Our uh, current strategy for approaching it right now is a piece of software called LibreJS, which is part of the GNU project. And what it does, it's an extension for Mozilla-based uh, um, uh, browsers, Firefox, uh, IceCat, GNUzilla. And it will uh, read the JavaScript files as they're handed to you, and it will identify if they are free software or not. And you can have it set to reject any that are not free software. And obviously, it's not the first extension to give users filtering control over JavaScript. Um, but it is, as far as I'm aware, the only one to try to automate um, notification about whether the JavaScript is free or not in this way. Now, how does it do that? Uh, well, we developed uh, uh, a specification, basically, that um, JavaScript developers and website administrators can follow. There's two different paths to go. One path is to put a license header comment in a JavaScript file <coughs> in a particular format, and the extension reads that, and then it knows that the software is free. Um, the second method to be used in cases of like minified JavaScript, what's essentially a compiled form of JavaScript, uh, is to maintain a page on the website called a web labels page. The web labels page has the JavaScript source code, the unminified version, along with the license of that source code. And that's done in a particular format, and the extension can also uh, read that. Now, we made the decision to just go ahead and put this out there, this system for doing it. Um, there are, maybe there are better ways of doing it. The nice thing about an extension, a piece of free software, is that it can be made to support other methods. So I know Mozilla actually has been talking about this some too, and they have a different way of uh, conveying license information about JavaScript using Apache headers, or web server headers, <coughs> HTTP headers. And there is no reason why LibreJS couldn't also be made to support that method. So we don't claim to have the only way to do it here, but what we do want to stress is this fundamental problem of people need to start licensing their JavaScript, right? And when it is already free software, which is often the case, you know, jQuery, for example, um, say it's free software, right? So that the users know it, and the users, that way you're helping users uh, avoid non-free software. And so we've also been working with, um, so we have the software, and then we've been making sure internally that all of our websites comply with this. And as part of doing our own compliance uh, rehaul there, we are learning a lot about how to help other people with it. And in addition to the obvious benefit of, you know, doing what we want other people to do. And as part of that, we've worked with some um, upstream projects to try to get this licensing information into the tree originally, so that when people just download and use the software, it's already there, and they don't have to worry about it. So we've been um, talking to uh, Wikimedia to do that for uh, MediaWiki. We've uh, been talking to Etherpad Lite to do it for uh, that software. Programs that we use at the FSF, basically, is where we're starting. So it would help if you can install this software, and it would only notify you about whether it thinks the stuff JavaScript on the page is free or not. Because mm -hmm. kind of currently, I think it only allows, it will only block or not do anything if you turn it off. So if, as, a, as a web developer, I would like to subscribe the standard, but it's not that easy for me to check if I'm complying with the standard. Mm -hmm. 
without blocking all the JavaScript in every page I use, right. which is not something I want to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know for, I mean, you, you sound like you already tried this. I don't know yeah, for sure whether I, you can have that setting um, on it. I don't remember the name. I, I also mentioned this on the mailing list uh -huh. um, a few months ago, but apparently uh, the developer hasn't had time to, yeah. to work on that. Yeah, this is one of the areas where people could help a lot is to uh, either help with development of the extension or uh, help with talking to um, JavaScript projects about making everybody's lives easier by a free software project which has JavaScript in it probably wants their JavaScript to be free. You know, this isn't controversial uh, so much as just work that nobody wants to do. You know, kind of like putting the license headers and the source code files of any um, code. So that's one easy way to help. Um, and we are actually working on a tool for internal use that we'll publish as free software, of course, to help automate the checking because we have run into yeah. problems where we update a site and they've changed some things about the JavaScript and now our LibreJS uh, compatibility has, has gotten off track. I think a big complication on, on this is uh, because people minify the JavaScript, yeah. so then you have to provide a separate table and uh, if it was possible to include uh, some, to, to simplify this and just include uh, the pointer to the licensor instead of including the pointer to the then the problem is that then the burden is not only on the author of the JavaScript, but the burden for the user. Right. The tool automatically then takes the time of the Yeah, I agree. That would it would be a, a useful. The, the suggestion was to have a tool which would automatically construct the needed um, web web labels page. Uh, including the license information and the source code. So that's also something we're definitely interested in. I'm going to kind of whip through this next section in order to get to questions here. Uh, there's not too much to, to say about it. I just wanted to call people's attention to our certification program. Um, we want to identify which hardware uh, only uses free software and only requires free software. And we want to put a label on that hardware so that people can have an easy time finding it and buying it. We know how much work it is to try to ascertain whether something actually is free software at all, sometimes. Um, so we need to make it easy for people to care. And that's what the goal of this program is. And if it builds momentum, it'll become, we hope, a motivation for manufacturers to respect user freedom more. So uh, I'm going to do something a little bit mean here and pick on this. Uh, this is not the kind of certification that we want. Uh, what does this label remind you of? Okay. It's kind of like a warning, right, on a cigarette package. <laughs> this product may contain material licensed to you under the GNU General Public License. It may contain products known to the state of California to cut. <laughs> now, this is me because this company um, did the right thing. They, they are distributing their source code. Only after we have a suit. After we shoot them. Uh, <laughs> nonetheless, okay. They are notifying users about their rights. Uh, but this is not what we wanted to, okay? <laughs> so we have a different um, label. Uh, this is our, our first version out of here. Uh, and uh, an American in the image. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, I don't know what I mean. It's the, li it's the Liberty else. Bell, isn't it? Isn't yeah. that it is the Bell, yeah. Yeah, I don't uh, even really know what that is. <laughs> yeah. Um, someone else pointed out that it's similar to the uh, an AT a mob, an AT&T logo from a long time ago. Yeah, it is. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, we're you know we're open to uh, <laughs> improving the logo, but freedom, right? That's the important part of it there. So we decided the bell, you know, indeed wasn't enough to convey the idea. We want the word on there as well. Um, but obviously, over time, anything can be improved. And it's fsep.org/ryf is the site. 
It's an actual certification mark that you can't display unless we have certified the product. Now, the first certified product is called the Lulzbot. Now, um, as somebody who's responsible for communicating the FSF's work to the public and promoting free software advocacy, you can imagine how exciting this conversation was for me when Josh came and said, I, I think we have a product we can certify finally. And I was like, that's great. What is it? And he was like, the Lulzbot. <laughs> Come again. <laughs> uh, but, you know, um, that aside, uh, and it is an awesome machine. It's a 3D printer that um, includes a lot of free software and, and works completely with free software on the system and talks to it. It meets all of our requirements. Um, we certified it, and the timing turned out to be really nice because at the same time that we did that, uh, a company revealed, well, somebody announced that a company had... Um, applied for patents on DRM for 3D printers. Obviously, a printer that supported DRM would not meet the FSF certification guidelines, so we were kind of providing the antidote at the same time that the threat was announced, and that was a very nice thing to happen. Um, and MakerBot, unfortunately, had also recently announced a shift in the proprietary direction away from free software. So you know, this is a case where not all 3D printers are, are going to be certifiable, and it'll be a useful distinction for people. This company has ALIF objects. Does this uh, require anything about the hardware being open as well? Uh, the full requirements are, you can see on uh, slash RYF. Uh, but it is not a uh, open hardware or free hardware certification. Um, it is focused on the software, right? And that's not because we don't like uh, free hardware. We're just trying to, you know, our main goal right now is, is free software. And that's what we want to get in the hands of people. Alif Objects is the company. They're awesome. Um, and my making fun of their name aside, <laughs> Uh, Jeff Moe, before doing this, had also supported, had also uh, put together a uh, distribution of GNU Linux that only, that also met the FSF certification guidelines. So, you know, this is what's tough, is when you have people out there that are willing to do this, when people talk to us about how we should be a little bit more lenient or make more compromises, you know, that's, uh, sometimes that's the right thing to do, but sometimes when you have people that are going all the way, you know, we sure as heck better support them. Okay, so review what I was hoping to do here and uh, leave the floor open for a few more minutes of questions. People have them. I was told yesterday of an issue that for the FSF to, um, to endorse a hardware product like the kind of open mobile phones, mm -hmm. they had to put the Wi-Fi wi blob required for the, for the model into a ROM that could not be readable by the user right. to comply with. So how, is there any change of direction uh, yeah. ahead? Right. Have so you the, seen this case and how it has been dealt with? Yeah, so the question is about the FSF um, position that uh, firmware that is in the device and cannot be modified by anybody uh, is outside the scope of the certification program, whereas if that firmware is something that's loaded onto the system, um, as software, that, that that's something that we do care about. Uh, and that is, I mean, that's a correct description of the criteria. The reasoning behind it isn't because we want that to happen. So, so this, was, uh, this was a last kind of ditch effort to try to get the, the new OpenMoCo to be something that we could endorse. Was to say, if you can do this, then it can meet the criteria, and then we can all start working together to try to make this not an issue in the future. Ideally, by getting free firmware for the, for the uh, card. But now they right. are in a situation where it's hard to develop uh, 
try to develop a, an open firmware for that if yeah. the, it's electronically electronically not printable. So yeah, um, so you know, it's where do you draw the line? If you say uh, firmware for the device is okay, it's okay if that's non-free. Then how do we draw the line against you know other software being non-free? Is it just because it's like small? No. Is it because it talks to the hardware? Um, so that's the problem that we're in. I mean, I, for me, it, it is disconcerting. I, uh, you know, devices where the firmware is non-writable by anybody are less hackable. You know, there's kind of a less uh, opportunity for users to make changes themselves. Um, you know, with a non-free firmware that's in the user space, you can replace it with a bug-fixed version when that comes out. I mean, we understand all those issues, but the problem is that how do you allow that and not allow uh, open the floodgates? And also, you know, we don't we think non-free software is something that shouldn't exist, essentially. And that's the FSF position, and, and that's what we're working to support. And again, when you have people that are going all the way, you know, that's what we want to motivate people toward. Now, I will say that uh, we have another resource called hnode.org, h-node.org, which is a hardware compatibility database. And rather than certify or endorse products, that just helps you know which hardware functions with a free software system. So that's uh, another thing to keep in mind when people have other concerns about the certification program is it's a very particular kind of program that is not our full effort at talking about compatibility with free software. Somebody had a hand up, thank you. Yeah, it was me. Uh, <coughs> yeah, I kind of share the concern uh, here. I mean, I think that putting the, um, okay, saying that uh, the, uh, the firmware put um, in rug is ex more acceptable uh, because it can be um, okay, seen as, as hardware, basically. Mm -hmm. But why not just say it's non-free non software is equally bad, and then not, in a sense, promoting uh, the fact that uh, they just can put the firm firmware in, in ROM. You, you, you see what I mean? Just you know, not talk about that. It's, it's non-free software, right. it's bad. Well, so you know, <coughs> I find it kind of weird to to, to go on that and say, uh, okay, it's firmware. Oh. If it is well, it's not that it's okay. Okay, it's right. Better. It's outside the scope I mean, of the certification you know. program uh, that we're pushing. So we would like somebody else, maybe, uh, to start a certification program. And there are some efforts afoot to actually uh, uh, focus more on these issues about the hardware and uh, how much the hardware. Uh, you know, establish a set of concerns that users should care about with hardware and certify based on those. Uh, but we're looking at the software, right? And if it's in the hardware and nobody can modify it, um, that's, if you're going to draw any distinction between software and hardware. I'm not, you know, I'm not sure we're on the same page here. I'm, 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 I don't understand why we had to say, uh, to make a distinction between um, uh, because if it's in ROM, nobody can modify it, like even the manufacturer, right? So what is happening now is that the folks are just, you know, uh, uh, releasing uh, non-free, you know, ROMs uh, and say, okay, in ROM, it's okay. And it's not. It comes on the hardware. I think maybe we're talking about something different because it's not something that anybody can change once it's burned onto the hardware. I think maybe the point that he's trying to make is that, the, in essence, even though it's turned onto the ROM and not user modifiable, that 
there is a distinction made between the fact that this is actually programmed code that's run by a microprocessor. And even though that the way that it's burned onto the chip makes it not user modifiable, there is a clear distinction in the in essence that somebody did program this and it is it is software technically firmware. Someone wrote the microcode that runs inside your Intel processor as well that Intel put in there that they can't get out. So does that mean that therefore you have to have a in order for a system to be free, that the processor design right down to the microcode that runs you know. So there's a definitional problem going down as well as going up. And the FSF isn't going to say, we're not going to run Intel chips until Intel releases the source to order their microcode. So they've got to draw a line somewhere. And where John has drawn it, it's like a pretty clear line to draw. And I, I, want, and I want to emphasize that we care. We do want to. So uh, if OpenMocha had been able to do that, our announcement would have been, uh, we can now endorse this product. But here's the unfortunate thing that had to happen in order to meet the criteria. So let's work to fix this issue by getting a free firmware for the card written. So the users have the benefit of both free software and the actual like physical control over the over the device. Don't you think that it would have been better from your side to then just not certify it as an open product? Exactly. Because now you're opening the floodgates. Well, I mean, you were concerned about opening the floodgates in one direction, but now you're opening the floodgates in the other direction because people are just going to put some binary block into a RAM or into a into an EEPROM where the write a write pin has been disconnected. And then I'm going to say, look, now you can certify us because we put some. But that would work because they, they, they can still, uh, they still know how to write it again. Uh, I, 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 I apologize, I think we have to get this up. You've had your hand up for a long time, I think? No. There was one question in the back. Oh, well, okay, uh, you, you pick one last question. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, uh, you've had your hand up and you already asked one, so I'm going to go with it. Yeah, uh, well, my main point is that it's not a black and white issue. This, uh, we have this problem in the, in the as well. Just because when you say use and modifiable, that's not one or zero, that's not black and white. It can be a use and modifiable with some effort. And then suddenly it's non free. Or is it? So it, 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 I think there is definitely more work to be done with this definition. Yeah, well, um, we can definitely welcome feedback on the endorsement guidelines themselves. They're uh, posted on fsf.org. And uh, Thank you, everybody. Um, I just. Thanks, John. Yeah. So John's been at the FSF for 10 years. He, I hired him. So I used to be, most of our listeners know my resume. I was the executive director of the FSF from 2001 to 2005. And I hired John as a shipper to ship the books to customers because FSFs often, actually since the old days, Stallman started making the Emacs tapes that he talks about in his talks. And from then on, FSF had some sort of publishing arm that raised money. So there was those tapes at first, and then they published paper copies of the manuals, and then CDs, and then T-shirts, and so there's always been that. And there's usually been a position that included doing some shipping and receiving type stuff. Mm -hmm. uh, and Which is a real pain in the neck, I can tell you, because uh, Rosanna, who is the um, who is the administrator at GNOME, was moving uh, to the West Coast 
And so she gave me a little bag, like a whole bag full of GNOME merch to send out to people who had signed up for GNOME membership, uh, Friends of GNOME. And so I was the one who had to send out mouse pads and t-shirts and things and stickers for a while. And that is really annoying work. Well, and, the, and there was a point at FSF, I, I think actually it's not as much uh, shipping and receiving now as it was, but there was a point when, uh, in the heyday of, of manuals, uh, mm. yeah, and especially in the pre-O'Reilly, before O'Reilly became this giant machine and paper books were still very common, uh, there was a lot of it every week. It was a major part of the fundraising for FSF for a very long time. And so there was always a halftime position uh, when I was there uh, and before doing shipping and receiving. Um, there was actually a joke that that was the person who had to lift any boxes over 25 pounds because the workers' compensation insurance covered that person for picking <laughs> things up because that position included right. some manual labor and it was the only position that was covered specifically for manual labor. Hmm. So we always used to joke that they always had to pick up. Anytime that something had to be lifted, that was the person who had to do it because the workers' comp covered it. And that used to be John. And it was John. That was John's first job at the FSF. And he held almost every other position all the way through. That's amazing. Not, not unlike me. Actually, I never hold the shipper. He's held more positions at FSF than I ever did because I was never the shipper. I was That's RMS's funny. assistant first. Because when he said that uh, he spent a year getting used to, um, to being executive director, I know exactly what he means because it took me, I think, probably a little bit more than a year at GNOME to get comfortable sort of completely with the role and um, what needed to be done and um, things like that. But then I was thinking that it was funny because John has, you know, been so involved in the, you know, different roles in the FSF for so long that he actually was much better positioned um, in a way. Then, uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, it was it, that that part was was the easiest for me as well when I was ex in his position, uh, because I had done many of the jobs that you know, I'd been a sysadmin for the FSF, I'd been mm. a compliance engineer, although we didn't really have that position when I was doing. I was doing it as part of RMS Assist, but effectively spun into another position. Um, I had been RMS Assist, obviously, so I'd done most of the positions that I managed. So that was helpful. It's, it's yeah, it's probably very helpful. Uh, so, uh, so, so. And now I've been sort of shipper gnome now. For a very brief period of time. I'm so glad that I don't have to do it anymore. Yeah. Well, like Conservancy, you don't have that many positions. No. Unlike FSAP, which has like <laughs> six people, uh, uh, gnome and Conservancy only have uh, two employees each. That's true, but so. then we have a lot of positions that are filled by volunteers. Yeah. So. Yeah, all of Conservancy software is all developed by volunteers, unless we yeah. unless we get going with this. But what's amazing MPO to me project. is that it's not just the software. I mean, it's, you know, it's our our website and our you know, like everything that we you know. So much of what we do is all run by volunteers at GNOME. That it's really it's effectively like you know part time employees in a way. So uh, so John's talk was primarily just an overview of of what the FSF has been up to in the last year. Yeah, I was glad he touched on a lot of this stuff, you know, like they're, you know, kind of like dispelling um, misunderstandings about the FSF at the beginning of his talk. And I thought that was good. I was really glad that somebody asked the question of, I was a little surprised to hear it from that crowd since it's just a knowledgeable crowd. But um, but the question of, well, can't the FSF just redefine what is free software and, and then distribute under proprietary licenses? That's actually... An advanced topic question. in some ways, uh, as far as copyright. And most people have not studied the copyright assignment agreement of the FSF yeah. to know that. So I'm, I wasn't surprised by that question, only because I, I, I think unless you've assigned, even if you've assigned copyright to the FSF, frankly, a lot of people don't no, read things I mean, in detail when they sign them. I mean, I hadn't thought too deeply about it until you and I revisited it for purposes of writing a new assignment agreement um, of you know how, how to improve the 
how to improve the language. So, you know, for a different context. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, I was glad that somebody asked it actually, because what, you know, I think that's kind of neat about the FSF assignment agreement is that it tries really hard to, you know, bend over backwards to avoid any of these kinds of gaming. I, I think it does. I, I said folks heard me in the last episode at the end of Jean Baptiste's talk, saying that I, as an FSF director, I believe that copyright assignment may no may no longer be needed for a lot of the reasons it was originally thought that it was needed for. Yeah. Well, John points out that um, you know that assignment isn't required. For new projects and GNU. Yeah, that's that's a that. confusion that people shouldn't still have. That, that confusion that people think every GNU package is assigned to the FSF in whole. But then people also forget that GNOME is a GNU project. The funny part is, is that there are parts of uh, actually they probably don't they aren't written anymore because it's like things Bonobo and stuff like mm. that. But there are parts of GNOME that were assigned to the FSF mm -hmm. in the early two thousands. Well, don't tell John because then he might have to tell us that if part is assigned, all must be assigned. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't think those parts. Uh, I bet if we tried to dig all this, like uh, uh, Federico assigned his copyrights, but I don't think he's actively working on GNOME anymore. Okay, well, so he, yeah. he assigns. Uh, but it may have been on things like Bonobo, which uh, were deprecated uh, at some point. I think Bonobo was deprecated, wasn't it, years ago? Yeah. So I remember Bonobo was new. Oops, sorry. Like, I was just. Uh, Flicking the table, um, yeah. I was—I uh, think I was moved by the dog snores. <laughs> <laughs> I, when when Bonobo was new in 2003, I, and then it was deprecated in my lifetime, which was kind of weird. Well, you've seen a lot of deprecated software. I suppose, but it's weird to see something started and deprecated in, in my. I'm I'm trying to think of other examples, but I'm sure there are a lot in free software. In free software, not that many. I still use time. Emacs. Well, Emacs is a particular example. <laughs> I still use GCC. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I'm sure there's. I still a lot use of other Linux. Things. There's a lot of packages that I. There use are. Oh, that, well, of course, there are a lot of packages we all use that have been around for a really long time. But there are a lot of things that have come and gone. I still use software. You don't think of. <laughs> <laughs> it's still I, maintained. I know you do. I just I'm, I just installed yeah. it out of Git this or yesterday. So. Yep. It's active. Anyway, so uh, what else did you want to mention about John's talk? Um, what else did I want to mention? Um. I thought actually his comment about um, about uh, popularity and adoption not necessarily being, you know, not necessarily being the end all goal, um, because I think people sort of are confused and they sort of uh, the end all goal of, like the uh, the end all indication of success for free software because I think people are really um, driven by greater adoption and are often. Um, influenced by that to choose permissive licenses because they think that more companies will adopt it, it'll be much more, you know, much, you know, used in a greater way. Mm -hmm. And I, I think that sort of drawing the distinction between what is success for free software is, I, I thought it really it was really smart. I've been amazed that, I guess it's a, an eternal September problem, that all these young developers don't even understand that debate and aren't, frankly aren't really interested in it, the debate between adoption and software freedom. Uh, I think that they've lived in a world where they're, they're given so much software freedom from the start uh, that they don't think about the fact that, well, there's the adoption versus software freedom part of a license choice. I started developing in a world where most of everything you had to do relied on some proprietary library mm -hmm. that, that you would have bugs in. And I spent 
my entire early software development career, uh, first four or five years of, of my uh, post-college career, dealing with that problem. And I think most developers don't deal with that problem anymore because either the, soft, the proprietary software underneath is better, Mac OS being the example there, or the free software is just so ubiquitous that they never have to think about it. When they deploy on a virtual machine, it's a GNU Linux system. Yeah. I was also really glad to hear John say that, uh, you know, to give advice for, for developers who want to develop for iOS and to say to make, you know, to make your software available, um, you for know, outside working. of the app store. And I just thought that was a great, that was, that was just really good to hear. Well, I was glad he covered it right after that because uh, Jean-Baptiste's talk, which was in the timeline of the day, was right before this. Well, and you'll hear you, you pipe up during the talk. I don't know if you remember, but you actually say that during the talk. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody here has heard you. Yeah, it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, so, but yeah, I, I, think it's, I think it's really important, that, 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 that this idea that we should just accept App Store. I, I, I'm, I'm bothered by it all the time because there was so much discussion that day at Fosdem because there was the the, the sign, that horrible Simon Phipps Amanda Brock thing we heard <laughs> on a previous Oddcast. There was so much discussion about App Stores as if as if we have to just count that. I don't understand why people love to kowtow to whatever the corporate gods say we should do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think this is it's indicative of the problems that we have in computing across the you know across the board. I mean, this is this is a, a sad state of affairs that we've had, and it's not simply connected to the App Store situation. It's connected to you know all of that, you know, convenience. That's why that, horrible yeah. things like David Pogue have happened. David Pogue is David a Pogue. is he's, he was a journalist for the New York Times, the tech journalist for the New York oh, Times, many say, years. And he basically is just a he's just a, a corporate fanboy who they, he loves to get his free stuff. And and there's that that famous thing, Leo Laporte, another example where somebody said to Leo Laporte, "You got this for free," and he started, wigs out on them. It's like you you get all this technology. People hand you technology products at no charge. You get all these little toys, mm-hmm. and then you just give them good reviews. And that's the way. But technology, he doesn't give everything good reviews. The point is, is that they're completely biased. They're completely well, biased. They're not. They're I mean, not real journalists. There's no, there's no real journalism technology. I think it's related to this because mm-hmm. the companies just control everything. These companies that produce it. Oh, a company produced it. A company produced it. It must be wonderful. A company doesn't produce GNOME. It must be horrible, right? I mean, this is the way people think. No, it's true. I think that there is that. There's um, no company behind GNOME, so. They're just companies. Well, and I know you can make this. I, I know you know how to make the argument back at this, but this is the this is where it starts. No, I know. This is where I the know. argument always starts. Is, well, there's no company behind. There's no company behind free software. Yeah, that's we've. I've heard that since. Well, and I love the that 1990s. all of the all of the you know. I think all of the examples that you gave just before about of uh, examples of uh, pieces of free software that you've used all this time are all examples of community driven. Not That's true. you know, not affiliated with any particular company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, That's, I, I'm a little obsessed with using stuff that's not affiliated. Yeah, as you know, I think it's it's good. I mean, that's that's why I'm at GNOME. So, uh, so I was uh, the the most important part of the talk to me was talking about proprietary JavaScript because I feel like it's the most important issue, free software issue we're facing. Yeah, right I think now. he covered it. I don't have any comments on what he said really. I don't either, other than to draw a, a huge attention to yeah. it, because I, I think that, 
uh, somebody on IRC just the other day w was telling me that, that it's some sort of arbitrary line to be worried about proprietary JavaScript. And I don't think it is because my, my point to them was that we got we, we took all these years, years and years and years to get to the point where you could use a computer, a normal everyday computer, laptop or desktop and not have any proprietary software on it and not install any proprietary software, not have any bytes that are licensed proprietary. And we lost all of that in the last uh, three to five years because of proprietary JavaScript. Mm. Most of the software people use every day is proprietary. And they don't realize it. That's what's so insidious about yeah. the JavaScript stuff. I and then somebody told themselves all arbitrary. Somebody we were on, on our list recently, yeah. you and I, where, yeah. um, where somebody who was quite knowledgeable... Who well, was, famously wrote one of the first GPL online applications, actually. I wasn't going to get so specific. Well, but there's a number But someone should know about the issue didn't know about the issue. And if that's the well, case... Well, didn't care is a better way to put it. And, it didn't, and also thought that it was just some sort of slippery soap argument that went down to ATMs. About it. I think he so, knew about it. I think I'm I think that sure. it was a slippery slope issue. It was it was sort of this argument of oh well if you're going to be upset about proprietary JavaScript, you might as well be upset about ATM ATMs and um, and um, and and your banks uh, uh, your banks like uh, like how they process your transactions and what they're using and all that. Uh, that that as if as if it's all the same thing. And my view is that those issues of services provided to you are different. I mean, I, that, and the FSF actually has that uh, essay that RMS wrote that I he, I actually wrote <laughs> small sections of that because he sent it around for comment. Uh, the who does the server really serve? Mm -hmm. uh, and he's updated that a few times over the last few years. In the last update, um, I actually gave him some feedback about it um, because my my big point, and I actually had this argument with RMS that is that. Uh, it, it sort of doesn't matter um, the line. Armas wants to sort of draw the line and say, well, proprietary JavaScript's a problem because it comes onto your computer. Yep. And then the services provided by a, a remote server, the issues are different depending on the details, mm -hmm. which he's right about. Yes. The problem is, is that every online application is a big mass of all of that. So right. there's there's some stuff provided as a service, some stuff provided through a JSON API, and then some stuff is just proprietary JavaScript running on your own computer. And you can't, make use of the site without all of that. Right, right. Although you said some GNOME developers recently were talking about how you can use GitHub. Well, you can use GitHub, right, if you, without if you write your JavaScript. own, right, you can write your own interface to avoid the proprietary JavaScript. And you JavaScript. can even get so, to some so, of the special GitHub features. So some features. of the developers on the list said. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. I mean, I have I really have hesitations about RMS's viewpoint that it doesn't, you know, there's no point in recommending one service over another, you know, if you know over whether or not they um you know they release their code and i i think that's wrong i think that's like saying there's no point in recommending one company over another that doesn't you know hmm. have good labor practices or hmm. I, I don't know i was really surprised to read he, well, he, I, I, i'm actually referring to this this uh, another part of there was a, a, a discussion on uh gnome desktop developist um basically uh Comparing GitHub and Gitorious. Mm -hmm. And actually, the, I, you didn't tell me that that came out that RMS said oh, yes. Git, Gitorious and GitHub were the same thing. He didn't say they were the same thing. He just drew the distinction. What software, you know, what what software they run on their own machines is mm -hmm. their problem. And I, I can't. There's no such thing. He said as a non-free service. Um, and then somebody that actually doesn't fit with the essay that he wrote because um, because he he actually uh, he 
he probably didn't understand the, the nuances of, of what Gatorius and GitHub do. Uh, because if you read his essay, which I think is very good, he talks about this thing called software substitute uh, as a service. Basically, stuff that you could run on your own computer easily, and there's no reason not to run on your own computer except that it's not available on your own computer. You have to run it as a service. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of the things that GitHub and Gatorius both offer uh, well, our software substitute as a service in some sense, and in the Gatorius case, at least you can take it under AGPL and run it on your own machine if you want to, or run it on your own group of machines for your community. Mm -hmm. um, but I think I think the problem, and this is the problem that RMS has in communicating this, is of course he doesn't use the internet uh, on a regular basis yeah. other than to push out and receive email, and so he's not aware of how these services get used in practice. That was pretty clear from the thread. Yeah. And and but but I think it's his distinctions are actually all the the sort of morally correct ones. It's just the the distinctions aren't available in practice, because the the as I was saying the things are a big blob of oh it's it's a service but it's also got proprietary JavaScript and it's also it's also some of it's software substitutes a service and some of it's not and it's all one big thing because yeah. they're trying to and actually he says this and I got him to say I he said it to me for comment and I added a sentence which he accepted as a change to say that these companies that sell these services actually want to conflate all these issues. Oh, yeah. Their goal is to conflate a proprietary JavaScript mm -hmm. with software substitute as a service with just regular services yep. because they want you not, they want you to just be locked in. Yes. It's the new form of lock-in. Yes. And people are locked into GitHub and, and I think it's horrible. And, and the problem is it's just like SourceForge was 10 years ago. 12 years ago. Well, so um, so basically the issue that we just had on the GNOME, you know, in, in the GNOME community is that um, is that some volunteers prepared a GitHub mirror, which I think is a great, you mm -hmm. know, it's free software. There should be, you know, a GNOME mirror wherever people want there to be a GNOME mirror. They can create it. Uh, but it was called the official yeah, GNOME know. mirror. Yeah. And um, I think we talked about this in the last show. Oh, okay. I think maybe we did. Okay. But. Then I'll stop talking yeah, about it. Was, it. Yeah, but it's not official. But now it's, it's not, not official. It's not official anymore. And I, but I'm also thanked those people for creating a mirror where they thought that they could get more contributors and more people interested in GNOME. Well, that's the that's the insidious thing about GitHub. Yeah, I mean, I, I, we can't simply, you know, opt out in that way. Like, I just uh, if people want to bring GNOME to somewhere, well, the only else, way they can opt right, out is by making it unofficial. They have every right to do it. Right. Well, so that's what we've done. Um, you know, but at the same time, I'm really glad that there are efforts to get more people interested in developing GNOME. So, uh, anything else? Uh, so the proprietary JavaScript is what I want to talk about the most. That's so it. We've I think about we've, it. we've covered it. Okay, so we'll have more Fosdem talks. We'll, we're, 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 in the, we're in the late morning of the second day of a two day conference. As but far we're, as but we're, we're finally like on a regular schedule of getting them out. Sort of. So. We're finally on a, more, a slightly more accelerated <laughs> schedule. That's true. So yeah, I, that, the last delay was my delay. Um, we actually said on the last show that we were on schedule, but now we're a week behind schedule again. Right. Well, thanks for sticking with us. So hopefully, we haven't been off the air, as it were, long enough that people would have removed it from their RSS feeds. I hope not. So I, I don't think that's the case. But thanks for continuing to listen.
So, Karen, we have another opportunity to make one of these little segments that may or may not air, or we're air. We don't I know when. It will, it will we air. Don't know when. I, I think it. I yeah, exactly. We don't know when. But I'm um, excited to announce that GNOME has another advisory board member. Private Internet Access is joining the GNOME advisory board. I've never heard of Private Internet Access. That's because they're um, they're small. So private. I've never heard of them. <laughs> no, they're small. They're basically. Um, uh, a company set up to provide like encrypted VPN, so to sort of provide an easy way for people to have more secure um, way of of you know doing things on the internet. <laughs> um, so it, it's a it's a pretty cool service. Um, and the, the but that's that's sort of a server type yes, service. It's not a it GNOME is. thing. No, no, but they're using GNOME internally, and uh, they. Are you know there were jazzed by our privacy campaign and um, there are a lot of good reasons to partner. Okay, well you're so your partner they're just joining. Yeah, and the advisory board. Okay. Yeah. And the advisory board is a non-binding advice advice panel that gives advice. Yeah, the to advisory board. It's it's neat. It's just uh, it's it's basically there's no because we're a five hundred one c three charity. None of the advisory board companies can have any sway over you know, what GNOME does and what the foundation does. And so basically joining the advisory board is a, a public show of support of the GNOME Foundation, but it also um, allows companies to serve in advisory roles so that they can have, um, you know, input. They have access to the board of directors and to me that they can, you know, make their opinions known. Um, and so there's value for being an advisory board member, even though there's no real like corporate voting or anything like that. Unlike the Linux Foundation. Unlike, like, right, at C6, our listeners will know that trade associations are different than... And Jim Zemlis told us that the trade associations are twice as good. <laughs> Still makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but you can buy your way. It's, it's like if you're really rich, you can buy the Linux Foundation. Yeah. Because you can buy the board. You can just yeah. buy all the seats you, on the board. You, you can. It's true. Although I think that there are, I don't think that there's an automatic... I don't think you're automatically on if you're willing to buy... I think you. Oh yeah, you are. If you're, if you're platinum, whatever the top level is, you automatically get a seat. Yes, but I don't think that you can automatically get just because you have the money doesn't mean you'll automatically get platinum. Are you sure? No, I'm not sure. But I think that as with anything, if a if I a guess company, they could turn away. A yes, exactly. Number. If a company wants to, that's join, true. They could turn away. They, a that's what I'm saying. That's true. Jim could turn them away. Yep. I, I'd be su I would be surprised if Jim turned away platinum members. I was actually discussing this with somebody. If, I would be surprised, but you, yeah. you know, I wouldn't be surprised in the instance where he felt like there was one large company that was buying, that was joining. Oh right, as if there's somebody, yeah, well, that's a bunch of LLCs and, and then tried to buy. And if someone was trying to I think he would do something with he would that. certainly. Turn but I was away. actually just talking with somebody about what happens when Microsoft shows up to be a, a, a platinum member mm -hmm. of, the, of the Linux Foundation. Would they be accepted? Um, I think they probably would. I'm sure they would. Yeah. Yeah. And I and I, I argued that Jim would spin that as as like the most awesome thing. Ever. I think he would. <laughs> yeah. But I do believe that if someone if he felt like a company was trying to game the that. Linux Foundation, he would turn them away. But the, I mean, the Linux Foundation is is gamed in the way all trade associations are gamed because it acts in the interest. But that's what it is. Anyway, this was about private internet access. Yeah, and but, not but about you the don't Linux act Foundation. in the interest of private internet access. No. Or any of your other advisory board no, members. No, That's no, why no. it's Scott. Well, we do roughly act in the interest of everybody. Yeah, but not so. any, anybody special. Right. <laughs> Everybody's special. <laughs> I think everybody's special is the right way to end this. <laughs>
Careers in Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Free as in Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. You can follow Free as in Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica, and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Free as in Freedom website, faith.us. That's F-A-I-F dot us. Episode what? What is it? Oh, I don't know. Oh, jeez. I thought that was done. I can't believe it just started. Oh, it's just draining, I think. Yeah. All right. It's 4-2, but do you want to wait for it to drain? How long does it take to drain? Okay.